the teams you care about. Mac Jones is good. That's not the question. The question is, is he good enough to win repeatedly in this loaded AFC? The stories that matter to you. If I'm Xander Bogarts, I need three things in order to get over that insulting contract offer. This is your home for New England sports. Jason Tatum, superstar. Book it. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show here on this Thursday, this soon-to-be thunderstormy Thursday on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Red Sox lose today 4-3. You heard it here on DEV. We'll talk about it with Buster Olney coming up here in about 15 minutes, but we do have a full show today, all 90 minutes right up until 7 o'clock. It's a busy, busy night for us here on DEV. 8.30 tonight, Thunder Road Racing, Nick Mumley, Greg Titus on the call, then we join in progress Game 6 of the NBA Finals. Busy night, busy show for us. We'll talk about those NBA Finals. Buster stops by and then at 6.30, an interview a lot of you have been wanting to hear and an interview that I've been wanting to do, Vermont native and last year's talk of the town, Owen Kellington will stop by at about 6.30, the, well, the highest ever drafted Vermonter in the Major League Draft and now a Pittsburgh Pirates prospect. So Owen will be with us here at about 6.30. You can get in on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. That's 802-585-3026. It's your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville and Facebook Live, YouTube Live, and my Twitter account. Anywhere you can reach us, we will take your comments. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts of the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center. Locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. Well, this is it. This is it for your Boston Celtics. It is win tonight or go home. Game six at TD Garden, Celtics Warriors. And I ask you this question. Are the Boston Celtics ready for the moment? Are they ready for a championship caliber performance because we are going to find out tonight Celtics are playing for their playoff lives they're playing for their season tonight and as I was thinking about the game and I was listening to all the commentary about it that question stuck out to me most based on what I heard Megan Adelini of WEEI in Boston say the other day like they don't understand the moment that they're in and I say that because you look at the case last night on the other side, of the, on the other team, Seth Curry had a horrible performance. He opened up an opportunity for you, and he just, like, sniffed at it, and we're like, you know what? No, thanks. We're not even going to make our free throws. We're going to turn the freaking ball over again and, and again and again. Like, when something like that comes along, you have to attack the opportunity, and it just looks like they're not ready. I've thought a lot about this. Are the Celtics ready for this moment? Are the Celtics unprepared for the moment like Megan Adelini thinks? You comment 802-585-3026. I think the easy answer is that they're not ready. The easy answer is that their inexperience is doing them in. But you know what? 
I don't think that that's the case. I really believe the Celtics are ready to capture the moment mentally. They just haven't done it physically yet. And I think that there is a distinction. To say that they're not ready kind of implies that they're mentally weak. And while they've shown some moments of that, I I agree. I think overall the Celtics have the mental toughness and they have the mental fortitude to go out and seize that championship moment. They just haven't done it yet in this series. And I think it's different. You look at what this Celtics team has been through this this year. You look at the adversity they've gone through together. They have always responded every single time. No moment has been too big yet. I don't think the moment is too big now. The Celtics just need to go out and prove me right. The moment wasn't too big when they were going up against Kyrie and Durant. The moment wasn't too big when they were 3-2 down against Milwaukee. The moment wasn't too big when they choked away game six at home against Miami and then had to go on the road and win a game seven. They have been through everything this postseason, and the moment has never been too big. I don't think that that is the problem. The Celtics have made mistakes. The Celtics have just played poorly at times. I do not think that they have been overwhelmed by the moment. I think they are mentally ready. I think they have the inner strength needed to go out and take it. They just haven't done it yet. I asked Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio yesterday if he thinks the Celtics are not ready, as Megan Adelini says. Here's what he told me. Boy, that's an interesting question, an interesting thought process. I'll say this. I don't think the moment has been too big for them. I don't think they've reacted well in the moment. And as far as I'm concerned, Brady, both of those things can be true. And we've known this all season on the Celtics team. They really don't deal well with prosperity. When the sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows, that's when they come out fighting. So I'm expecting that in game six. I hope so. I agree with what Freddie just said. It's not that they're not ready. They just haven't responded well to that moment. And they're going to need to, obviously, tonight to keep the season going. I mean, look, they're not, the Celtics are not some plucky underdog. They're not some eight seed in the final four in the NCAA tournament. They very well may be the more talented team than Golden State. But like Freddie said, they've been prone to bouts of inconsistency. They've done this all year. They need to figure it out tonight and they need to put it on its head one more time here. But, uh, Celtics, Warriors tonight looking to force a game seven. Ross says on the text line, I need a Celtics win tonight for my 36th birthday. Ross, we're going to try to get you one of those. Will over in Plattsburgh, where is Tatum? He needs to step up. I I don't think that Tatum has been as big a problem as everybody wants him, or as everybody makes him out to be. Has he been the star that we want? No, not 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 not. At times, I I acknowledge that he's not perfect. He hasn't been perfect. And I'm not trying to just defend him and write off his struggles at times. He's missed a couple of huge free throws. He did that in game five. He's been a disappearing act in the fourth quarter. Jason Tatum has not been perfect. But Jason Tatum still went for 27 and 10 in game five. Like Jason Tatum went for 10 in game five. Derek White went for one point. I mean, Al Horford was in single digits. Jalen Brown was 5 of 18. 
all of these guys also deserve blame. It's not just Jason Tatum that deserves blame. I believe that Jason Tatum is a superstar player. He is going to need a great effort tonight. The Celtics are going to need, in general tonight, they are going to need huge efforts across the board. If you're asking me, what do the Celtics need to do tonight in order to win? One, they need to remain engaged and focused on the task at hand. It sounds simple. But really, for the first time, the Celtics kind of looked out of their element in Game 5. Complaining about the refs was again a problem. They seem to fixate on the outside stuff. They can't do that. I don't think that that is not being ready for the moment. But I do think the Celtics let some of the outside noise affect them. They've got to remain strong internally. They've got to remain connected. And Brian Windhorst of ESPN said something similar this morning. Well, they've got their backs against the wall, and their message to each other at their meeting before practice today was back off the officiating. Team-wide, they feel like they've been focusing too much on the officiating. That includes head coach Ime Udoka, who got teed up uh, during Game 5. They feel it's led to distraction at the offensive end of the... Stay within yourself. Control what you can control. That is one thing the Celtics need. Two... They need the role players to step up. I just ran through the list of guys that didn't in game five. They need all of those guys to be good. Al Horford, I think the Celtics need to get in double figures tonight. They're 2-0 and when he gets in double figures in this series. They're 0-3 when he does not. You know I've got the number for Smart, Horford, and White at 35 points. That trio needs to get 35. I usually don't care how you get to that 35. Today... I'm asking Horford to be a bigger piece of the pie. Marcus Smart going for 24 and just praying that you get at least 11 from White and Horford. That's not enough tonight. 17 from Smart. 14 from Horford. 10 from White. That would get you to 41 points, which is more than 35. I would love that kind of productivity. Horford can be an asset from deep. Be that asset tonight. And finally, Jalen Brown. He, too, needs to be big tonight. 5 of 18 is not going to cut it. Everybody wants to look at Tatum and what he's not doing in their mind. Jalen Brown has had a great first quarter of game three. He had a great fourth quarter of game one. He has been electric at times in this series. He also has been a disappearing act at other points. They're going to need him to not be that guy today. 5 of 18 from 3 is not going to cut it. Or 5 of 18 from the floor is not going to cut it. 0 for from 3 is not going to cut it. They need the best versions of Jason Tatum. The best version of Jalen Brown. They need the role players to step up. As the texters say, they need to cut down the turnovers. That's true. They got 13 less shots than the Warriors did in game five. You get 13 less shots, less chance for you to make, more chances for them to make. Not rocket science. Limit the turnovers. If that sounds like a lot of keys to the game, that's because it is. It's game six of the NBA Finals. You're not going to win this with just being a with one thing going right. Your season is not going to be extended just because one thing goes right. You're going to need a slew of them to go right. Horford, smart, white, play well, score. 
Tatum, Brown, don't turn it over. Get to the cup. Hit your free throws. Defensively, take somebody for Golden State out of their game. Maybe it's Clay, maybe it's Steph, maybe it's Wiggins, but all three of them cannot go off. It's a lot. It's a long list of things that have to go right for the Celtics today, a long list of things they have to do. I believe they can do it. I don't think the moment is too big. They just need now to go out and prove me right. Peter on the text line, you're spot on as usual, Brady. I hope the Celtics ate their Wheaties today. I've got them winning big tonight. And he says, also, we're psyched for your chat with Owen Kellington. I am psyched to chat with Owen Kellington again at about 6.30. I'm also psyched to talk with Buster Olney. Buster Olney, our ESPN MLB insider. He is going to be with us on the other side of the commercial break. Red Sox lose 4-3. to three. That's not the issue. Trevor Story, he is the issue. What the hell is going on? We'll talk with Buster. That's next on DEV. All the insight into everything going on in baseball. It's time for our weekly conversation with ESPN Baseball Insider and Vermont native, Buster Olney. I'm just about ready to bet the family farm in Vermont. On the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. That's right. It is time for Buster Olney here on WDEV. It is the Brady Farkas Show. Buster with us every single Thursday at this time. Red Sox lose a day game today, falling to the A's by a score of 4-3. to three. Buster, happy Thursday. How are you? I'm doing okay. I appre- uh, it, 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 uh, Go ahead. I was going to say I appreciate, appreciate you being with us as always. Yeah, always great to talk with you. You know, before I get to the Red Sox, I am curious. One thing on my bucket list is the College World Series. It begins tomorrow. Have you ever been to Omaha? Yes. Um, I actually went there first to cover a game for uh, the Nashville Banner between the Nashville Sounds and the Omaha Royals. Uh, But then I think it was five, six years ago I went there to do the College World Series, a couple games for ESPN. Uh, to do baseball tonight uh, from there, and, and that was really cool. And the energy there is is awesome. You know, a couple of my colleagues on Sunday Night Baseball, Carl Rabich and Eduardo Perez, um, this past weekend, we're getting ready to go there and digging in, and they're pretty excited about it. Yeah, it starts tomorrow, two games tomorrow, two games on Saturday. I can't wait for it as well. Always been a bucket list item of mine. Maybe one day I will get there. Uh, Buster, Sox lose today 4-3 to three to the A's. That's okay. They've won. They're 8-2-1 and one in their last 11 series. i got to tell you, when A.J. Puck hit Rafael Devers in the throwing elbow in the eighth inning, my heart almost dropped out of his chest. Yeah, and you can understand that. <laughs> I can understand that because when you talk about, like, who are the top candidates for American League MVP, uh, I probably wouldn't have Devers one or two. I got Aaron Judge. I got Jose Ramirez. But he probably at this point would be, like, number three or number four. He's been that good. And I don't know how he does it, but it feels like every year his hands as a hitter just keep getting better and better and better. He just does crazy things. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's absolutely at the heart of anything the Red Sox are going to accomplish this year. You know, he had four, he had home runs in four straight games, I believe. He also, he had an error today, which actually ended up being the game-winning run for Oakland. But he's been very good defensively this year also. He just continues to grow and get better. And, and the number just keeps going up on Devers. I can only imagine what Scott Boris is eventually going to ask for for him. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and I can, you're talking about his defense, I can remember when he was in the minor leagues, 
uh, talking with evaluators, you know, scouts from other teams who are saying that he can't play third base in the big leagues. You know what? He's not going to. He's too erratic. Uh, and, you know, talking with Red Sox evaluators who just disagreed. They said, no, his, his feet are a lot better than what people realize. We think he'll be okay there. And, I mean, we've seen he has the ups and downs. He can make throwing errors. He can get erratic. Uh, I think especially earlier in his career, he tended to take some of his offensive struggles uh, out out to the field. Uh, you know, the, the feeling on the staff was that he would sometimes make errors if he was struggling at the plate. But he has been, I think, better than anybody expected. Um, and you're right, <laughs> numbers going up and up and up. I would love to be a fly in the wall anytime the Yankees and the Red Sox play and Aaron Judge is over at third base, and, the, and you know between he and Rafi Devers, the amount of money those two guys are going to make in the next two years is pretty incredible. Well, we hope the Red Sox lock up Devers. The guy they've already locked up is Trevor Story. And Buster, outside of one about 10-day stretch, Story has not been very good this year. I mean, he's got one RBI in what feels like about the last month and a half at this point. Um, his bat looks slow. He's chasing breaking balls. What do you make of Story's struggles? Yeah, uh, I uh, look, you know, I do wonder how he's doing physically based on you know what I hear from folks with other teams. They talk about, you know, watching his throwing motion and wondering if, if he's 100% there. Um, you know, you and I talked about how last season, you know, he had an issue uh, with his elbow yeah. and his velocity was way down. And then in September, uh, as he went down the stretch, that picked up a little bit. He worked on his throwing mechanics in the offseason. And what I'm hearing from other teams, uh, you know, the question, it's more of a question than it is, like, what do you think about story? What have you seen in story? What do you see in him physically? Uh, and so you just wonder how he really is. You know, and if you're the Red Sox, you're, um, they clearly yeah, certainly be, would have been aware of, of all that. Uh, and, you know, you, you wonder, uh, you know, what their conversations are like because he has not looked good for most of the season. You're 100% right. Yeah, he's 0 for 5 today with three strikeouts. He's 11 for 52 in June. Um, Kang, in more than one third of his plate appearances, he certainly has struggled of late. It's been a prolonged struggle. Buster Olney of ESPN joining us here on the Brady Farkas show on WDEV. Let's talk about Chris Sale now. Um, there's all this talk about Sale coming back, and Sale said the other day he'd be willing to come out of the bullpen. Alex Cora said yesterday, no, we view him as a starter. What exactly do you think is the best thing here for Sale's health, productivity, and the Red Sox? Well, first and foremost, uh, given the amount of money that they're paying him, you know, $145 million contract, they need him to be a starting pitcher. You know, the most amount of money ever given to relievers, something in the range of, what, $75, $80 million. And uh, so if you're the Red Sox, you can do everything you can to get him back to being a, a starter and get him back to being the sort of starting pitcher he was when the Red Sox acquired him. And I must say, you know, watching video of his uh, session today at Fenway Park, that was about as encouraging as I've seen. Uh, you could tell... You know, he had extra velocity out there. He's from 96 miles per hour. I saw Alex Cora, you know, he's quoted as telling reporters that was more than what we saw at any point last year in terms of his velocity, his consistency. Now, it was, you know, two innings and about 30 pitchers or so. 
Um, and he's got a ways to go to build up. He, uh, you know, is going to throw one more, at least one more session to hitters, and then he'll build up his pitch count from there. So you would assume that we'd be looking at, you know, at this point, probably sometime around the all-star break where he might be ready to come back. But I, I guarantee you that, you know, Alex Gore and anybody else in the Red Sox organization who watched what he did today walked away thinking, okay, you know, that might be the best Chris Sale that we've uh, we've seen since he had Tommy John surgery. And, you know, it was really interesting within those comments by Cora. He talked about Sale's changeup and how this was the best changeup that he's had in a while. We didn't see the changeup last year. That surprised me because I would have thought coming off of Tommy John surgery, the, the, the breaking ball would have been the thing that's harder to get back. And last year, the slider was better than the changeup. That, that, that surprised me. Is that typical from what you've heard before? Well, I, I think it just depends on the individual case. It might be, and I have not specifically talked to, to Chris about this, but I wonder last year, clearly lacking full command, uh, you know, lacking the velocity that he typically has. If he, if his feeling was, you know what, I, I need to focus on my two best pitches and to try to, to bring those two pitches back, uh, which is why Alex referred to him in 2021 is essentially a two-pitch pitcher. Yeah. Um, I can't tell you why, you know, he didn't necessarily incorporate the change but that would be my guess that, you know, he had uh, in his preparation to come back and pitch last year, only certain, certain amount of bandwidth, so to speak, that he could work with. And he decided to focus on the two pitches that have always been his two best weapons. You know, you told us last week, and I agree with you, that High and Bloom is not going to play pay premium dollar to upgrade the bullpen. We all agree the Red Sox need bullpen help, but I, I agree with you again. He's not going to go out and overspend to get it. I'm starting to think that High and Bloom might look at it this way. Sale comes back to the rotation. That bumps Whitlock back to the bullpen, so we help the bullpen there. And then they've got this interesting group of minor league starters. Maybe those guys filling in the bullpen here down the stretch, and a lot of the acquisitions come from within. Could you see it playing out that way? Yep, and I think that's true for every contender. You know, it's funny. I didn't, uh, obviously, uh, this was not a conversation related to the Red Sox, but I actually asked Brian Cashman, uh, you know, parallel question about the Yankees about two weeks ago. He's the general manager of the Yankees, of course. Uh, you know, I asked him, I said, hey, as the season's going along, uh, who do you see is developing as maybe August, September options coming up in the minor leagues and being weapons out of the bullpen? He goes, you just never know. Like those things tend to develop, uh, you know, as the season goes along, maybe release. Uh, you know, begins to throw a little bit harder. Maybe they develop a, you know, a, a pitch that becomes a, sp- a special weapon for them. And we've seen so many examples throughout baseball history where a guy came up late in the year and had a big impact, you know, out of the bullpen. Uh, probably the most prominent example. I know you'll remember this, Francisco Rodriguez. Yeah. You know, 2002 came up at the end of the year for the Angels and was just lights out. Uh, you know, 20 years before that, Fernando Valenzuela. You know, came up and pitched out of the Dodgers bullpen. So those things can happen. And I, you know, just uh, talking with folks with other teams, they feel like that one of the strengths that Himes, uh, of Himes' work with the Red Sox is he's just built up more depth and they have more options to you potentially choose from. So we'll see how that goes. The other thing, too, and you and I talked a little bit about this last week, um, you might not necessarily go out into the marketplace now and pay. 
uh, high prices because it means you're paying probably 20% above retail. But if we go down into the last days of July and some of the non-contenders, and there's going to be a lot of them, become sellers, those teams could could dump relievers out of the marketplace because those are the hot stocks that you know teams want to take advantage of uh, with their value. And the Red Sox could easily get help toward the end. I just don't think Heim is going to be preemptive. Buster, you know, it's it's crazy. The Red Sox are hot. They got the Tigers coming up here next week. So that's another three games where you expect them to do some damage. And then it turns pretty tough for the Red Sox. Cleveland, Toronto, Tampa, the Yankees, all back within the division before the All-Star break. I'm starting to think, like, we're talking about the Red Sox making moves. What if the Red Sox just can't gain ground? Like, they're still in fourth place. For as good as they've been, they're still in fourth place. Could they go all in at the deadline knowing that their best chance is the last wild card spot? So I, I think that, that and you are framing it perfectly, I think what a lot of front offices are going to be talking about as we get close to the deadline, I actually think the American League teams are going to be relatively less active than the National League teams because when you look at the American League teams, there's such a gap between that, the, the good teams and the bad teams, there's such a split that if you're the Red Sox, even though this, let's face it, it's been a disappointing start. You had a nice month of May, but generally speaking, you're frustrated uh, that you're in fourth place. You're still probably going to make the playoffs. Yeah. <laughs> because the American League Central teams beneath the Twins have, have underperformed. You know, the Guardians have, have some good players, Jose Ramirez, Shane Bieber, et cetera. So they're in contention. Um, I don't have to tell you the Mariners have been one of baseball's biggest disappointments ah, yes. this year. But if you, you know, the Angels have come back down to earth. The Red Sox could be sitting in fourth place in the American League East and still be in an excellent position to make the playoffs because there's just not that many good teams in the American League. Buster only of ESPN. Buster, I'll get you out of here on this. We got maybe 90 seconds left. Uh, Celtics tonight, game six, NBA finals. Interesting commentary out of Boston where one uh, WEI host said, the Celtics don't look ready for the moment. You've covered a lot of teams, a lot of young ascending teams. How do you know when a team is ready for the moment? I think you wait and see if they win or lose, and yeah. that tells you whether or not you're going to say they were ready for the moment. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> you know, that, that's what I'd like. Yeah, I tend to think sometimes the commentary from, you know, knuckleheads like me, uh, you know, is completely dependent on the results. I remember walking up to Bruce Bochy when the, the Giants won three championships in five years in 2014 World Series, and I had known Bochy a long time. Walked up to him after uh, one of the games, and I said, you know, Bochy, I'm having a hard time keeping track. Are you a complete idiot today, or you are, are you just the biggest genius ever? Because that's always seemed like, you know, on a day-to-day basis, if you win or lose, that's what was being said. I look at the Celtics, oh, my good, you know, I mean, terrific run. They got they got a lot better during the year. They're so much younger than the Warriors. Yeah. Of course the inexperience potentially could manifest, uh, you know, uh, not as nearly as much consistency. I think it's pretty simple about in terms of what's going on here. Buster only ESPN MLB insider Buster appreciate it. Red Sox lose today, four to three. We'll talk next week after the uh, Sox have taken on the Cardinals and the Tigers. So Buster, we'll talk then.
Okay, Brady, thank you. All right, Buster, only of ESPN, certainly one of the best. I want to react to some of what Buster said, talk about the Chris Sale story. We'll do that on the other side of the uh, CBS National News Update. So National News Update, and then we're back at it. Chris Sale, Buster says he's got to be a starter. I agree with him. We'll talk about why I agree with him. That's next on WDEV AM and FM. Now it's back to the Brady Parker Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. I want to thank Buster Olney for stopping by from ESPN. He does that every single Thursday. Buster's interview, as well as our full show podcast and all of our interviews, are available on our podcast channel. Just search for the Brady Farkas show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and WDEVradio.com. Owen Kellington, the U32 product, the highest ever drafted Vermonter by the uh, out of the Major League Baseball draft. He will be with me about 25 minutes at about 6 30 um i want to kind of recap and follow up on some of what we just talked about with buster regarding chris sale chris sale says he'd be willing to work out of the bullpen alex cora says we see him as a starter buster believes that is the right course of action as do i it's very noble that chris sale would be willing to work out of the bullpen right help the team get back quicker etc it's very noble to put your ego aside, I praised Andrew Wiggins for it the other day after his Game 5 performance. I, I praised Chris Sale for offering. A guy who is a has been a perennial Cy Young candidate working out of the bullpen to help the team in a playoff run, that is a noble thing. However, Chris Sale needs to be a starter because the thing, like that is what's best for both the Red Sox and Sale. Sale is not meant to be a reliever in the way the team would actually benefit from him being one. Like, if Chris Sale was going to be a bullpen arm, I would want him to be an incredibly high-leverage arm, right? I want him to be the guy that puts out fires. And maybe he's the closer in the ninth on Monday, and maybe he's in the seventh on Tuesday, and he's back at it again on Thursday, and he's back at it again on Sunday. That is that that is the perfect bullpen version of Chris Sale. However, the Red Sox can't use him like that. Like that's the role that would serve the Red Sox well. Sale can't be used like that. It's too much of a risk. He's got too many arm problems and too much injury history for you to feel comfortable deploying him in that manner. It's just not realistic. So that's the role in the bullpen that would would help the team. That role in the bullpen would be detrimental to sale. He can't do what is helpful to them. He needs, at this point, complete structure. He needs scheduled appearances, and I'm not into doing that in the bullpen, right? Like, remember what they were doing with Whitlock earlier in the year, and I bagged on that? Hey, we're going to throw three innings on Monday, and then we won't be available Tuesday, Wednesday, and we'll throw two more innings on Thursday. I'm not interested in that. That doesn't help the team. That hampers the rest of the bullpen. So the high leverage role that I like, not, not good for sale. The scheduled relief appearances that would be good for sale, not good for the team. So the bullpen's out. 
The bullpen is out. Buster says, hey, he's making $145 million. He's got to be a starter. Like, that is very true as well. But for me, the, being a starter is the only thing that allows him to to stay healthy and help the team. That That's it. It's noble that he's willing to pitch there. But he's got to be a starter. And if that means he's got to go out for a month on rehab, then so be it. Come back around the All-Star break, and let's give this team the injection that it needs. Sale comes to the rotation. Whitlock goes to the pen. I think Whitlock's future is is as a starter, but there was always going to be an innings limit for him. So mid-July or so, he becomes your bullpen acquisition. He goes back there. He gets back into the high-leverage role, and now Sale's in the rotation, and now we go. Buster just said, I don't think that High and Bloom is going to be preemptive in the reliever market. I don't think that he is going to go out of his way to spend big on relievers. So there's got to be some internal acquisition. Whitlock going back to the pen could be just that. So Chris Sale starting, that is the best on all fronts. Best for the team. Whitlock gets back in the pen. That's good for the team. Best for Sale's arm. That That is what is best. I asked Tom Karen of Nesson about it yesterday. He also agreed. Chris Sale is best served as a starter. And I'm glad to hear that at his, you know, live bullpens today, you know, he was throwing 96 miles an hour. I'm glad to hear that his changeup is looking better. He's always had a good changeup, a devastating slider, and 96-97. If he's got 96-97, a devastating slider and a good changeup, he can be an asset for this team moving forward in the rotation this year. For what it's worth, like, but I will say this. I think Chris Sale can be a huge piece of this puzzle, but you as a fan have to recondition your mind. Despite what the reports are saying, Despite how optimistic we are, this is not the Chris Sale of old. We have to condition our mind to realize that. He's not coming here to just carry you on his back, CC Sabathia 2008 style, through the playoffs. It's not there. He's here to play a role. And he will play that role. But that role is not put the team on his back. I, I, here's, here's what I think of Chris Sale. I think that Chris Sale now is better than Rich Hill, right? He's better than Rich Hill. So the bar is higher than that. I do not think that Chris Sale right now is better than Nathan Evaldi. I think that Nathan Evaldi's best is better than what we have left of Chris Sale. I think that my expectation level for Sale is about what it is of Nick Pavetta. If you're asking me who can Chris Sale come in and be like, Nick Pavetta is the guy. He could have stretches where he is completely dominant and untouchable. And he could also have stretches where it makes you scratch your head. That is where I'm at. I don't expect Chris Sale to come in and be the savior. Recondition your mind from thinking that as well. Expect him to be better than Rich Hill. Expect him to be worse than Nathan Evaldi. And you get Nick Pavetta. And that is exactly what I think Chris Sale could be 
down the stretch for that team. And the Red Sox are going to need his contributions because they are going to be in a battle to try to make the playoffs and hold on to a playoff spot. The AL wild card field is crowded. And I know there's been some bad teams that, you know, Seattle might get back into it. I don't know that they will. They might. They've got an easier schedule coming up. Cleveland might hang around. Their division's garbage. Chicago is going to get back into this thing, I think. They just need to get healthy. My goodness, are they unhealthy. So the Red Sox are going to be in a battle. Chris Sale is going to have to be a part of it. But I don't have the expectation that he's just going to carry the thing. Uh, For what it's worth, John Tomasi of NBC Sports Boston had this to say yesterday about Sale. I mean, I'm a doubting Tomasi on this one. I'm sorry. Like, you said it. We had him break a rib throwing a pitch now maybe that's just a one-off maybe that was incredibly bad luck or maybe it's just further evidence that the chris sale of 2015 pre-red sox 2016 that guy is gone and to rely on him i don't doubt that he'll make it back at some point but to rely on him to just be a day in day out every five days starter i don't see i i can rely on him getting the ball I, I think that Chris Sale can get the ball every five days. I just don't think that he is going to be the Chris Saleable. He certainly is a risk every time he takes the mound. I can trust that he can stay healthy for the rest of the year. I just don't – like, he's not a 200-inning guy right now. He's probably not ever going to be that again. Well, luckily, if he joins the year in July, we'll be 90 games into this thing, and he'll need to be a 75-inning guy. I trust he can do that. We just got to recalibrate our mind as to how good he'll actually be. Red Sox do lose today, by the way. Day baseball, 4-3. We had it for you on WDEV. This one was uh, very interesting. The Sox kind of slept, walk, slept, walked through this one. And then all of a sudden in the eighth, they had unbelievable chances here to come and get back in front. But they do end up losing 4-3. to three. Let's play you back. Some of the highlights here. So we started out. Chad Pinder, the former Vermont Lake Monster, made it one nothing in the third. Chad Pinder digs in. The pitch from Rich is ripped up the middle, and that's a base hit. It will score a run. Pache is waving third. He will come home without a throw, and the miscue in the outfield becomes a run for the A's, and they lead it one to nothing. Yeah, there was a, a miscue in the outfield there. Trevor Story and Jaron Duran with a miscommunication. A's would make it 3 nothing later in that inning when Christian Bethencourt got hill. The 1-2 is ripped into left field, and this is going to score two runs. Man, Pinder comes home. So, too, Loriano. The contact has been loud ever since the drop pop-up in the outfield, and the Athletics lead it 3 to nothing. Two-run hit for Bettencourt, and this is snowballed a little bit. Yeah, that made it 3 nothing. Sox will get one back later in the uh, bottom half of the third, and uh, Xander Bogarts brought in a run on a RBI ground out, so on a force out there. The 0-2, swinging a ground ball up the middle. It will get the run in from third. Devers comes home. The throw to first in time to get Bogarts, so particularly in a two-strike count, that's a job well done. Xander has his 31st RBI. Red Sox chipping away. It is three to one with Martinez still at second. And in the sixth for- inning, Elvis Andrews made it four to one. Uh, there was a Rafael Devers error. So then in the eighth, things got very, very interesting. The A's with two outs started making their own errors. So Sox again down four to one here in the. Uh, let's see. Uh, 
Here you go. Four to one, two outs in the bottom of the eighth. His pitch. Swing and a ground ball hit to third. Grabbed by Bride. Throws across high. Throws it away into the photographer's well. A run scores. And the Red Sox have the tying runs in scoring position. 4-2 Oakland. Routine grounder to the rookie Bride who debuted here on Tuesday night. And he just sailed it way over the head of the first baseman, Brown. Yep, so that made it 4-2. Sox would make it 4-3 right away. Pitch to J.D. Swinging a shot toward the middle. Knocked down by the second baseman. It rolls into center field. Here comes Rodney rounding third, and he's sent back. Throw to third. He just does get back safely. It's 4-3. Kemp saved the tie there and made a dive behind second base in the outfield grass. It rolled a few feet away from him. He picked it up. Rafi was rounding third. I think Pablo did the right thing in holding him. It's four to three with a tying run at third base. The go-ahead run at first, and Bogarts coming up. Yeah, and the Sox would uh, be retired there. Xander Bogarts was retired. Trying to remember exactly what did Bogarts do. Nonetheless, he didn't get the hit that would have tied the game. But uh, I think he grounded. Yeah, he grounded to third. Bride flipped it over to second at that end of the inning. Red Sox would lose it four to three. Again, though, they are eight, two, and one in their last 11 series. And now they're going to take on the St. Louis Cardinals. That is going to be tomorrow night. Our coverage will begin again at 610. Tonight, we've got just massive stuff going on. Brady Farkas show for another 40 plus minutes or so. Then jazz with George Thomas for about an hour and a half, seven to eight thirty. Then, We get Thunder Road Racing the first Thursday on the summer schedule. Nick Mumley, Greg Titus on the call. So 8.30 there at the nation's site of excitement. And when that ends, probably about 10.15, we go over to the NBA Finals Game 6. So we'll catch the NBA Finals in progress probably just before halftime. All right, we do this every single day. Let's get to who's saying what. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? Mac Jones. Good Lord. Mel Kuyper's got to slow down on this. Mac Jones ain't going to work, folks. It's not going to work. He's got to come to terms with it. It's not going to work. They really said that? Every damn thing is politics and race, and I'm losing my mind over it. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Parker Show on WDEB-AM, FM, and WDEBRadio.com. Yeah, we get a text on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. Losing to the A's is pathetic. Can't lose gimme games. You know what? I generally agree with you, but the Red Sox went 6-1 and one against the A's this year. The Red Sox went 6-1 and one against the Mariners this year. The bad teams lately, they have cleaned up on. They just took three of four from the Angels who were reeling in Anaheim. So 6-1 and one against the A's, 6-1 and one against Seattle, took three or four against this latest iteration of the Angels. I'm more mad they got beat three out of five by Baltimore a couple of weeks ago than I am by this loss against the A's. Okay, who's saying what is brought to you by Vermont Laser Wash. That's Central Vermont's home of unlimited car washes. It begins at just $20 a month. So if you want that package, $20 a month. One free car wash, though, just text the word Vermont to the number 30 and then 400. Let's move to our one football story of the day. So yesterday, we spent time on the Julian Edelman story, and we talked about if he was seriously considering coming out of retirement and if the Patriots should give him a call. And I said the Pats should give him a call only if they needed help because of injuries at the end of the year. 
But I ran my plan by Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio yesterday, and he actually disagreed with me. I'd rather have him at the beginning or not at all because I think bringing him in, and even though he knows the offense, you still got to develop some chemistry with your quarterback and chemistry with that offense, especially if you have not been in it for more than a couple of years. So if he's going to do it, I'd rather him be there at the beginning of training camp, the beginning of the install, to have him in the middle of the season, even though he knows he knows the offense, the Patriots know that. I don't think that'd be a good idea to have him come that late. Either be there earlier, don't be in it at all. See, that's an interesting perspective. And Freddie, he's right about a lot of what he said, right? Edelman's never played with Mac Jones, so there isn't just instant chemistry there where he can just kind of pick it up and get going again in November. They don't know the way the other works. They don't know each other's tendencies, the way Edelman comes in and out of breaks, the way Mac releases the football. Like, if Edelman went to Tampa, it's like riding a bike for him and Brady. It's not that way for him and Mac. And now in New England, you got some new offensive terminology, New offensive teammates. You got a new offensive play caller. So it wouldn't be seamless there either. So Freddie is right. I am acknowledging it would be harder for Julian Edelman to just pick it up in November, given these changes. He's Freddie's absolutely right. But that said, that's still the only way that I'm willing to bring Edelman back. Guys have to do that all the time, right? Guys get cut and have to learn new systems on the fly in other places. Guys get traded. Like OBJ, it took him a little bit, but he got into it with the Rams last year. Like guys have to acclimate on the fly all the time. So I think that is the best way to get Julian Edelman in the door here. Like that's the only way I think it makes sense. He's 36 years old. He's had a host of injuries, right? Host of injuries, foot problems, knee problems. Hasn't really played at all in the last two years. He's not a 17-game player. Freddie said it's better to have him early or not at all, and that might be true, but I don't trust that Edelman can stick it out for 17 games, so therefore, I I can't cut guys. Like, I'm not cutting my second-round pick in Tyquan Thornton. I'm not cutting Jacoby Myers, who I think is excellent. I'm not cutting Kendrick Bourne, who had a great year. I can't cut Nelson Aguilar. I can't cut Devontae Parker. Like, I can't cut these guys. And then I've got other young, iffy pieces that right now are more interesting long-term than Julian Edelman is. So I don't have room for Edelman at the beginning of the year. The only time I have room for Edelman is at the end of the year if I'm suffering from injuries and if my my core of receivers is depleted. Freddie's right. It would be tough. Signing Edelman now would be easier for him. I got to trust that Julian Edelman was a decade-long pro, that if he's feeling like he's going to sign with somebody, he's got to think that he can get up to snuff pretty quick. I, I just – look, Julian Edelman is a Patriot legend. He's probably going to get his number retired. He's going to go in the Patriots Hall of Fame. He is a great Patriot, and I respect that legacy. But I can't just cut guys with real potential and who can make real impact just to honor that legacy. It's show business, not show friends. It's not show legends. Julian Edelman is not a a 17-game-a-season player. Could he be a five-game player? Yes, I believe he could. Could he play eight games for me? Maybe. But I I can't have him at the beginning of the year. It just doesn't make enough sense. It's not feasible enough. 
uh, text on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. Maybe he should go somewhere else. You never know. Well, one, I'm going off of what Edelman said, right? Edelman said that if I come back, I probably would go back to the Patriots. He said, I love the Patriots, Foxborough forever. Those were his words. So I'm going on the assumption that he wants to play in New England if he plays. I also think he's not a a 17-game-a-season player anywhere. And I think a lot of teams, like if you're a bad team, Julian Edelman, like Julian Edelman could probably go play for the Lions right away. Julian Edelman doesn't want to go play for the Lions. The Texans, those guys got room. The teams that are good, they've got crowded rooms. And they don't need a guy who is such a question mark. The Chiefs don't need a question mark. Miami right now doesn't need a question mark. The Patriots don't need a question mark. So I'll keep Edelman's number handy. I'll call him if I get in a bind. And yeah, it will be tough for him to acclimate under those conditions. Guys do it every year. Pitcher gets released on Monday, is starting for a new team on Friday, and has got to get used to a whole new set of signs and a whole new catcher and all that. It's just the way sports is. Julian Edelman would have to do it too. I'll call him if I'm in a pinch, but I don't need him at the beginning of the year. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, when we come back, Owen Kellington, hard to believe, a year ago, he was pitching in the state title game for U32. And he was pitching for the Vermont Lake Monsters. And then he was getting drafted in the fourth round of the Major League Baseball draft. He's down playing in the Florida Complex League for the Pittsburgh Pirates organization. What exactly has he learned in this first dive into professional baseball? His first season, Owen Kellington, he's going to be with us next on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV. Ian Keen here. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on this Thursday on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Owen Kellington going to be with us momentarily. Hard to believe it has been almost one year since Owen Kellington got drafted. I'm going to ask him, you know, what the last year exactly has been like. But this time last year for us, we were on Owen Kellington watch. Like, we were talking to everybody, trying to figure out where he's going to be drafted, if he's going to sign, is he going to go to UConn, whatever. And he ends up getting drafted eventually in the fourth round by the Pittsburgh Pirates. Highest ever drafted Vermonter in the Major League draft. And he signed for $600,000 eventually in four, you know, four went, four, four goad. He didn't go to UConn. That's what we're trying to say. He didn't go to UConn. He went pro and he's now playing in his first professional season here for the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates organization. He's got two appearances so far, two and a third innings. Their season started late. It's, you know, it's very low a ball right now that he's in and uh, two and a third innings. He's allowed three runs, got a couple of strikeouts. He's actually nursing a hamstring injury. We'll, you know, I'll ask him about that as well. Hopefully that doesn't keep him out too long. But yeah, last year at this time we were on Owen Kellington watch and it was really one of the, one of the more fun stories that, that I've had since I came to Vermont because you just don't see it. You just don't see guys from Vermont get drafted, period, especially getting drafted that high. Like, guys from Vermont have gotten drafted since I've been here. 
Rain Supple out of CVU got drafted, I think, you know, in the mid, you know, 11th round, 13th round, something like that. Theo McDowell out of Essex, he got drafted. So guys have gotten drafted, but nobody's had the hype that Owen Kellington's had. I mean, he struck out basically everybody last year. I mean, it was something like 100 strikeouts in 40 innings or something like that. It was in, it was like almost striking out the side every, every inning. It was un, insane, like what... He was doing, and Owen Kellington is with us now on the phone line. So let's go out to that phone line. U32 product, Pittsburgh Pirates prospect, and fourth-round draft pick of the Pirates last year. Owen Kellington is with us now on the phone line. Owen, thanks for being with us. A lot of people excited to hear this interview, my man. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I appreciate you being with us. You know, it was hard to believe that it was almost a year ago that you got drafted. We had you on, I think, the day of the draft or the day after. Kind of take me through what that year has been like. Where have you spent most of your time? What have you been doing here prior to this season actually beginning? Uh, it's crazy that it's been a year. But, I mean, I've just been down here in Bradenton. Um, just been doing a lot of here at the facility. Um, I mean, they're taking us really slow, which is fine. It's a big change to, to go from high school baseball to, to professional baseball. But, no, it's, it's been great. I've basically been training down here at Pirate City. I trained for a little while in Tampa, uh, Tampa, Florida, Diesel. Guys like Aaron Judge, McCutcheon, they all go there. Um, so that was really cool. But basically just, just been training down here in Florida. Have you been home at all? Did you get home at all yeah. since you left? Yeah, yeah. I was I was home for a, uh, about a month, month and a half. Um, right season to see my family and my friends and stuff you know i saw one pitch a one pitch highlight that you put out first off the curveball was a hammer so that looks good secondly you look like you are thicker i don't mean thick in a bad way it looks like you've clearly been working out has that been an emphasis on building up lower body strength and things like that since you uh, got drafted yeah i mean like all throughout high school i always worked out and stuff but i mean when you're when your job is is just to, to work out and play baseball it's pretty easy to get some some nice gains, um, so yeah, it's been a, it's been a big focus is getting stronger and, and just getting just getting bigger and being able to throw the ball harder, um, and just being able to to sustain more. Also, just having a bigger lower half is is great for for preventing injuries. Using lower half. Two professional appearances in the books right now. Two innings the first time out, a third of an inning the second time out. I know you had to leave that appearance with a with a slight hamstring issue. Is everything look good? Anything to be concerned about on your end? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I mean, today was the first day that I really talked to my trainers about it, and they, I mean, they did a bunch of resistance work and and stuff, and it, it looks to be just a sprain. Um, so hopefully, I'll be back out there in a couple of weeks. So you're playing for the Florida Complex League Pirates. Um, how exactly are they viewing kind of just the way the team is is um, preparing everybody? Is it Are you guys having, you know, five pitchers a day and everybody's going one or two innings? Are you having a traditional starter that's going six and then bullpen guys are filling in? How exactly is it working from the pitching side of things? Um, it's kind of a mix, like – I know, like most games, there'll be a guy going three or four, and then a second guy going three or four, um, and then they'll have a list of guys to come and fill in the the remaining innings. Like if the guy gets in trouble early, bullpen will come in. So it's kind of a mix. There is kind of like a traditional like starter starters. Like there's a couple of them, but there there is bullpen guys who travel and are just pitch when they they need to pitch. 
What has been the biggest adjustment that you've seen between the high school game or even high-level travel ball and the pro game? What has been the biggest adjustment for you? I guess just the speed of the game. Um, I mean, I know that's like a, a classic answer, but just like the speed of the game, it's just a lot different than high school baseball and specifically Vermont high school baseball. Um, I mean, the guys are – all the guys I'm playing against are great athletes. They're really fast, can, can hit for power. Um, so just kind of having to face, I know in, in summer ball a little bit in high school too, there was always like a couple like really good hitters like or good hitters on, on each lineup. And now it's like one through nine, they can all hit. They have good eyes. It's just like a whole different thing, I think. Owen Kellington joining us here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. You know, given that the competition is ratcheted up, is there things that you've never really had to do that you're doing now? You know, you didn't get a lot of base runners on in high school. Holding runners might be something that's a little different for you. We're working on different, uh, you know, looks to the plate might be different. Throwing more off-speed pitches might be different. Pitching to wooden bats is different um, consistently. What exactly have you had to kind of do you've never had to do before? Well, for one thing, I never really had to throw my, uh, my change up in high school. Um, it was kind of just like a pitch I would work on every once in a while and, and have in my back pocket. But here, I mean, you can't really get away with only having two pitches. You need three. So that's been a big emphasis working on my changeup, and it's gotten a lot better. And then I pitch more off my curveball now than I did in high school. Um, I think in high school, a lot of times I pitch off my fastball just because I, I could. Yeah. But I think down here, I have a lot more success um, pitching off my curveball and kind of that being the the pitch I kind of base all my other pitches around. You know, what's the velocity like right now? You talk about seeing games. We had heard, you know, 92, 93 when you got drafted. What Have you seen significant increases in velocity right now? I haven't really. I had a finger issue for um, a while, about a month. It was like on the on the pad of my finger. Yeah. It kept a blister and it kept affecting my throwing. Um, and then I wouldn't be able to throw for a couple of days. So that kind of that kind of messed with my velo a little bit. And just this past time out was the first time it was better and I got hurt. Um, so I haven't really, I don't, I haven't really thrown like to my full capability, I think in about a month. So I'm not really too sure where the, the velo stands, but I mean, when I get back, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing it. At such a young age and at such a developmental stage of the minors, do the Pirates give you a detailed plan of where they see you five, six years from now? Like, are they, hey, we see you as a starter, we're going to work on that today. We see you as a reliever, we're going to work on that today. Or is it just, we're going to go out there and play and in three or four years, we'll kind of see where things are at? Kind of. They, we have like these like pitcher um, player meetings and, um, what I've gathered from them is just that they really like my stuff and they really like how my fastball and curveball work off each other. And uh, I, I'm, from what I know, they, they're projecting me as a starter. Um, but I know that could easily change in a couple of years or whatever. So um, it hasn't been too clear set out of plan because you can never really be sure in, in minor league baseball in terms of what's going to happen. But I know I'm on a good path and, and I got great coaches who are going to get me there. You know, going back to the draft, that, I thought it was easy to tell that you were going to go pro. You downplayed it. You kind of always left it up in the air. But I, I, I said on this show many times, I thought you were going pro. Was it ever a tough decision or was it always as easy as I thought it was for you? It was, it was pretty easy. I think if I wasn't going to go pro, I would have rejected the Pirates offer. Yeah. 
So when they offered me before they drafted me, I would have said no if I, I had decided I wanted to go to UConn. Um, so I, I was kind of just keeping my options open just in case um, when I talked to you last time. But I, I was pretty set on, on going pro, and, and that's really what I wanted to do. You know, I, I told you this when we were setting up the interview, and I mentioned this on the air, but I didn't tell you at the time because I didn't realize at the time that the scout who, who was responsible for drafting you, who came to watch you pitch multiple times, is my former college teammate, Eddie Charles. So we had Eddie on the day of the draft, too, which was a cool yeah. get for us. But, you know, I, I was playing with him 10 years ago, and here he is drafting, you know, the highest drafted Vermonter ever. What was it about the Pirates in the scouting process pre-draft that you liked them and felt comfortable signing with them? Um, I mean, I thought they were really open and honest about their plan for me and kind of what they saw in me. Um, I think a lot of teams kind of overlooked me just because I was from Vermont and I hadn't faced as good competition. Um, but they were super, they weren't really um, like focused on that. They were really focused on my stuff and how my body moved. And I know they saw me at the combine, so they, they saw that I could pitch against good competition. Um, and I just, I just enjoyed everyone I talked to at the Pirates. Um, I actually, I didn't know that they were, they were one of the ones who were in the running, like who wanted to get. I mean, I talked to them a few times before the draft, but I hadn't, hadn't really heard anything super serious about like when they might pick me or that they really wanted to. Um, it really wasn't until the middle, the third and fourth rounds, that little break when I got a call from my agent and he told me that that they were going to take me. Uh, first pick on the fourth. You know, one of the things that it, that would excite me if I were you is Ben Sherrington is the general manager of the Pirates. And when he was with the Red Sox, they built up a really good minor league system. A lot of the guys that won the 18 title are Ben Sherrington guys. You know, Andrew Benintendi and Mookie Betts and all these guys that came up through the system. Is that something that played in, you know, just knowing that the ownership or the, the leadership group in Pittsburgh has a good history of developing young minor league players? Yeah. I mean, um, I was talking to my agent about it. Um, before the draft, and he was he was giving me teams where he thought I, I would do well, and he really liked their management and stuff. And Pirates were one of them. I mean, from what I hear, it's a huge upgrade, Charrington over over the last GM in terms of of just culture and and kind of development around the Pirates organization. And I know um, even already we have I think six top 100 prospects, so yeah. I'm, we have a pretty loaded farm system as it is. So I'm excited. You know, I don't. Are they doing the pitch clock and everything down at your level? What is that like for you to see it? It's been weird. They they say they're doing it, and then they don't really enforce it. It's kind of weird. At, at least the FCL, I know they enforce it in low A, um, but it's definitely different. I haven't really noticed too much of a change because I'm I'm someone who works fast usually. Yeah. Um. So I, I really I don't really like pay attention to it that much. Um. They are doing the robo ump in low A, um, for some of the games, which is pretty cool. Um, they haven't they haven't done that in the FCL yet, but um, in low A they they have been, which is which is cool to watch. What about the analytics side of things at your level? Are they teaching a lot of the analytics and and stuff, or is it again? Does it just go out and play? Um, it's analytic based and just go out and play. I mean, at this level, they're more worried about just like you getting reps, I think, and like making small tweaks. They don't want to like overhaul everything they just drafted. Um, yeah. But there definitely is some analytical components, um, and I, I talk to, to my pitching coaches about analytics pretty frequently. We're making a change in a grip or, or something in my delivery or something. I was checking on the analytics to make sure that they're matching up and that I'm not missing anything when I'm changing um, something in my motion or my grip. So they, they do play a part. 
You know, I saw uh, that out there right now is the first set of Owen Kellington baseball cards. I'm waiting for the day where the MLB, the show update comes, where you end up there in a Pirates minor league system on the roster front. Is it uh, What's it like to have your own baseball card? Uh, it's, it's really cool. Um, I mean, I, I grew up collecting baseball cards. I, I had a bunch. So just to have your own and be able to give it out to my friends and family and, and people who are fans is really cool. Well, I'll get you out of here on this. It is always a question I ask people who are from Vermont who aren't here anymore. Whenever you get to come back next, what's the first place you want to go eat? That's not mom's home cooking. Oh, that's a good question. Um, probably uh, Buddy's Burgers in Vermont, uh, in Montpelier, I'm in. Buddy's <laughs> Burgers in Montpelier. Okay, I've never been, so now I'm going to have to add it to my list. Yeah. Great burgers. <laughs> Owen Kellington, the uh, highest ever drafted Vermonter by the Major League Baseball or out of the Major League Baseball draft. Fourth round last year by the Pittsburgh Pirates playing right now in the Florida Complex League, nursing the hamstring injury. But, uh, Owen, get back to health soon. Again, a lot of people asking about you. A lot of people happy you're on the show today. And uh, we'll check in again later this season. And good luck down the road. Sounds good. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Owen Kellington. There he was. A lot of people had been asking for Owen Kellington updates. A lot of people wanted to know how he was playing. Well, that's exactly how he's doing. So there you go. You heard it right from the horse's mouth. And and I enjoyed, I enjoy talking to, to Owen as well. You know, I, you can just tell he sounded a lot more comfortable talking with the media this year. And I don't mean that he was bad before. I don't mean that at all. But last year he was guarded, right? When we had him on last year and you're asking him, okay, are you going to go pro? Are you going to go to college? He was guarded. You know, he, he knew there were certain things he couldn't say or shouldn't say publicly, and he reacted as such. So this year he was a lot more open and a lot more kind of willing to let you in. He's also only, you know, 19 years old. So he's going to continue to get better and better and better with the media. And I'm sure when we've got him on in five years, he's going to be just as polished as all hell. But I thought uh, I, I thought there was a lot of good stuff in there. 802-585-3026. Uh, we get a message on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. This was great, Brady. Thank you. Owen Kellington certainly has a lot of maturity for someone his age. Credit to his parents, coaches, etc. I sure hope he excels in the uh, major leagues, whether in Pittsburgh or whatever. Uh, another text says that his scout for the Pirates was your former teammate is a small world. It's amazing given you're part of that trio being in sports media. That is actually one of the weirdest things that about this whole thing, that the guy who discovered Owen Kellington for the Pirates is my former teammate. Like, look, it's crazy because... I played Division Three baseball, and therefore my teammate played Division Three baseball. And it's not to say that you can't do great things going from Division Three baseball, but I certainly, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know that he was a scout. Nevertheless, that I know he was a scout who was high up enough to actually be making, you know, decisions about the draft, pretty much. And again, he was a good player, and. I didn't know he was in scouting. I knew he worked for the Pirates at one point. Didn't know he still did. And it just kind of came to me a couple of days before that another former team out teammate said to me, hey, Eddie is working for the Pirates. He's got the draft coming up. And then when Owen got drafted, I was like, wow, what's serendipity? And we ended up getting Eddie on, too. And it was nuts. Um, I, I don't want to recap the entire interview because I want to finish with a couple of things on the Celtics. But there was a few things in there that kind of really stood out to me. He confirmed what we already knew, right? Like, he said, I wanted to go pro. 
I wanted to go pro always. We knew that would be the case. We said it on the air last year multiple times. Even as he left the door open in college and even, even his other media outlets in the area asked him what he was going to do and they all hemmed in awed over it, we knew that he was going to go pro. Like, yeah, UConn was always an option, but it was never his preferred option. He Did you hear him say he got offered a deal before he was picked? Basically... And Eddie Charles told us this last year, too. Basically, they went to him and said, hey, we're going to draft you if you'll sign for this. And if you won't, then we're not going to pick you. And he said, okay, I'm going to. So he had a deal before he was ever selected, which is not illegal in the major league draft circles. Um, Glad to hear he's utilizing his changeup. Of course, he never really needed to do that in high school. So now that he's at a higher level, I'm glad he's recognized that, yeah, you have to adapt. And, yeah, as he said, you need three pitches. I think that's really important. And having that kind of full repertoire aids his chances of being a starter, which is something that he you know, said that right now they see him as as he moves towards the majors. And I also liked his recognition at how deep – pro lineups are like it's one of the first things i learned when i went to college when you are in high school by and large the three four five hitters they make you pay for mistakes everybody else you can get away with stuff too three four five they make you pay when i was in college i learned that basically one through six can make you pay you can get away with some stuff seven eight nine but one through six are going to make you pay. Well, and then what does Owen say? One through nine. One through nine can run. One through nine can hit. One through nine is disciplined at the plate. And that's what I've learned. And I think that's really good recognition of that at a young age. So it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to follow Owen Kellington's career. Celtics, the guy that I want to see step up in game six. I'll tell you who that is. That's next on DEV. Father's Day. This is former NFL wide receiver Keyshawn Johnson, and now we're back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV Radio and WDEVradio.com. Thank you very much, Keyshawn. Brady Farkas Show back at it here on WDEV. Look, we don't got a lot of time left, okay? Red Sox lose today by a score of 4-3. to three. Here's the plan for the rest of the night. Jazz with George Thomas comes on. In a couple of minutes, 7 o'clock until about 8.30. Then we're going to send you out to Thunder Road. Nick Mumley, Greg Titus, they're going to be on the call the first Thursday of the summer at the nation's site of excitement. So hopefully the rain holds off and they get a full card in today. So Nick and Greg will be there again, 8.30. They'll be on the air until about 10.15, 10.30. And then at that point, we're going to join in progress game six of the NBA Finals. Celtics and the Warriors seize trying to extend their season and force a game seven. So we're going to catch that game in progress probably, probably end of the midway through the second quarter, maybe halftime, depending on how fast or slow it's moving. But look, if you want to see the Celtics try to force game seven, we're going to have guaranteed the whole second half for you. The guy that I want to see step up today, Peyton Pritchard. Peyton Pritchard has been tethered to the bench for the most part in this series. If you're asking me the off-the-beaten-path guy I want, 
it's Peyton Pritchard. Grant Williams would be great. You know, uh, Daniel Tice would be fine. Peyton Pritchard is the guy that I want to see step up today. If he can get on the floor, I want to see him step up. Don't know if he will. I talked to Freddie Coleman about Peyton Pritchard yesterday, and he said, Brady, he's too small. Warriors are too long. He can't get open. He can't get a shot off. Maybe that's true. But this feels like a series where Peyton Pritchard should have been able to make an impact. This is a track meet series, a three-point series, a run-and-gun series. That's And Peyton Pritchard fits that style. So is it likely? No, I'm not going to tell you it's likely. Is it possible? It's certainly possible, and it's the guy that I want to see do it. We get a text in on the text line. We want to see Grant Williams have one of those games like he did against Miami. I think you mean against Milwaukee when he went for 27 in game seven. Grant Williams carried the team in that one offensively. Peyton Pritchard is the guy. That's the guy that I want to see step up today. We're going to talk about it all tomorrow. Celtics. Warriors. Our coverage begins immediately following Thunder Road Racing. Thanks to Buster Olney. Thanks to Owen Kellington. Thanks to all of you for listening. The show brought to you by Pro Driver Training. That's Pro Driver Training, Vermont's premier truck driver training school, and online at prodrivercdl.com. Go download the podcast, everybody. I'll see you tomorrow on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV.